This is episode number two of the No Name General Aviation Podcast with Dave Higdon, Jeb Burnside, and Jack Hodgson. Recorded Tuesday, September 5th, 2006. Show notes for this episode can be found at www.aroundthefield.net. They don't want to spend money on people. They're more than happy to spend money on hardware and throw multi-billions of dollars at contractors trying to come up with the latest and greatest national airspace system plan. Absolutely. Tools are tools. It takes humans to make the tools work. Well, here we are with our second episode of the No Name General Aviation Podcast. Once again, around the virtual table, we have Jeb Burnside from someplace in Virginia. Jeb from Aviation Safety Magazine. Hi, Jeb. Hi. How are we doing this evening? We're doing pretty good. We, it's kind of sad, everybody. We we actually were in the process of arranging to get everybody talking on Skype, the internet phone system, to get better sound quality. And, and then at the last minute, we had some technical problems, so Jeb's back on a regular telephone line. Uh, yeah. and, uh, and then we also have Dave Higdon, uh, the aviation photographer extraordinaire, is with us as well. Hey, Dave. Good evening, folks. From, from Wichita, Kansas. Air capital of the air capital. <laughs> Where I understand it's now fall. It's apparently we've flipped a switch over the last couple of weeks. It's all, it's all of a sudden November here uh, in, in the D.C. area. It's just been raining and drizzly and overcast and on the verge of being chilly. Did you get a lot of rain from the uh, the hurricane, quote-unquote? We did, actually. Um, yeah, quote-unquote. We got, if you, if you believe the forecasts, I don't know what the actual rainfall was, but if you believe the forecast, we should have gotten six to eight inches. But you didn't. Not to my knowledge, no. Yeah. I live kind of on a hill, so it doesn't really pile up here, so mm-hmm. it's not a huge crisis. And I'm Jack Hodgson, and I'm uh, up here in New England in the greater Boston area. And we were supposed to get the hurricane, too, but by the time it got here, it definitely fell apart, and we just got two days of overcast. Of course, the two days were Saturday and Sunday of the holiday weekend, so that was a lot of fun. But uh, but That's the way it went here, too. Yeah. So, And we had bright sunshine, moderate winds, never got above 82 all weekend. It was like the uh, a month of August ended, and somebody flipped a switch, and it suddenly became human again here. So, Well, so we should all obviously move to Wichita. Absolutely. Come on down. Push the housing prices up, please. A little bit of podcast uh, housekeeping here. We are still on the lookout for a real name for our podcast. We've been calling it, uh, awkwardly, the No Name General Aviation Podcast, and we're going to stick with that a little bit longer. Uh, But uh, we're trying out all kinds of names, and any of you listeners have any thoughts on what might be a cool, clever name for our podcast, we'd love to hear from you. Yes, please put on your Tom Terrific beanie propeller cap and see if you can't come up with a name for us, because God knows we're not doing a good job of it on our own we got a whole slew of ideas but i'm not sure if any of them are jumping out at us yet so we're gonna we're gonna ponder it a little bit longer as a matter of fact i was going to invite people to you know we really i mean you hear this all the time keep those cards and letters coming in but we really would love to hear from our audience uh, we got a a, a a nice number of uh, people downloaded the first edition of this so we know some people listened in and that's really gratifying and although we're perfectly prepared to keep doing this podcast however the spirit moves us and whatever pops into our heads, we would love to hear uh, what 
what people are thinking and what kind of people are listening to this. So I'm going to invite the audience to send us to do a sort of impromptu survey. Uh, send us an email to, and I'll give you the email address in a moment, but send us an email. Tell us whatever you want to tell us, but let me suggest a couple of questions that you might answer. And they're very simple things. We'd like to know whether our audience are, in fact, current pilots. Are you, in fact, a general aviation pilot? And if so, for how long have you been a pilot? Tell us a little bit about your aviation experience. Tell us what part of the country you live in. We don't need to necessarily know what city you live in, but if you could tell us what state you live in, that would be useful to know. What aircraft do you fly most often would be interesting and help us to kind of gauge uh, who we're talking to. Uh, and finally, tell us what we should name this podcast. All suggestions are welcome. We're going to ultimately make the decision, but we would love to hear your ideas. Guys, do you have any other things you'd like to hear from the audience about? If you like our accents, okay. We wouldn't mind hearing about that. <laughs> okay. Perhaps some topics. Justice for topics would be a good thing to receive. Um, perhaps some discussion on things going on in the industry, regional events, things like that would be, uh, I think, uh, fair topics for us to discuss on this podcast. And I'd like to hear personally if people have a favorite fly-in, favorite event, some uh, some little getaway to that they hold near and dear to and try to make it every opportunity because general aviation is so much about people and we wind up too often talking so much about politics and planes so uh, if you've got a favorite get to that you'd like to share with us i've started compiling a list from some suggestions other people have given me downstream ways we may try to find a way to uh, make that a little mention a feature once a once a mm-hmm. broadcast great idea good idea great idea so, yeah, send these ideas to, uh, you can send them as emails to podcast at aroundthefield.net. That's uh, around the field, one word, uh, podcast at aroundthefield.net. That will find the, its way to us. As a matter of fact, if anybody out there is sort of audio literate and would like to actually record something and send it to us, that would be pretty awesome, too. Uh, we would love to hear your words, and uh, and we might even play them on the show. So Absolutely. Then, next piece of housekeeping, just so you know, the show notes, uh, this this uh, edition will also be at aroundthefield.net, um, but you should just know that aroundthefield.net is our temporary home, and when we finally come up with a name for this thing, we'll be creating a, a website dedicated to this podcast, but aroundthefield.net is the place to look for us for the time being. Finally, if you are listening to the podcast and enjoy it, we would love for you to give us a plug. If you have a website or a blog or even a podcast of your own and you like what we're doing here, we would just be thrilled for you to give us a little plug referring people to uh, to us at uh, aroundthefield.net. Uh, you can also find this podcast, if you haven't already, at the uh, through the iTunes Music Store uh, and through a number of the other podcast uh, portals such as Podcast Alley and Yahoo Podcasts and, and other. So, uh, you know, we'd appreciate your helping us spread the word if you enjoy what we're doing. If you don't like what we're doing, well... Keep it to yourself. (laughs) That's right. Uh, That's all the housekeeping. I actually have one more trivial bit of housekeeping. This is me kind of being clueless. Last episode, Dave was talking about the flying that he's been doing, and he referred to flying OPA, and and I just didn't even get what OPA was. And for anyone else out there who's not up to date on these things, OPA, I'm told now, stands for... Other people's airplanes. There we go. It stands okay. for other people's airplanes. So don't go looking for the OPA dealer on your home field. Although if there's enough demand on it, we might invent one. Well, 
on that note, let's jump into the stories for the uh, for this uh, episode. Let's see. Probably the biggest quote unquote the biggest story of the last couple of weeks has to do with uh, the Comair fifty one ninety one crash in Lexington, Kentucky. Uh, that was the uh, commuter aircraft that tried to take off on the wrong runway and uh, killing forty nine people uh, out of fifty on board. The non aviation media. I mean, there's a lot of elements to this story and a lot of different ways it's been approached. The one that kind of caught my attention most was that the non-aviation media seems to be trying trying to say that the tower should have prevented this. What do you guys have to say about this whole thing? You know, it's funny. I was visiting my hometown in uh, southern Indiana only about 45 miles from Lexington, so this was very much a local story in the Louisville media. Louisville, Kentucky media when I was home a uh, weekend before last. And it was uh, interesting, to say the least, to see how the uh, the amateurs and the general media were coping with what was a uh, pretty clear and straightforward-looking crash site. Uh, speculation that the aircraft had taken off and was trying to come back. Speculation that it uh, flipped off the runway because The debris field was directly off the end of runway 26, the short runway at at Bluegrass Field. And the uh, aerial photography, the aerial cinematography, showing the uh, fence cleared out, tree limbs broken, and the debris right off the end of the runway, even then they weren't sure of what they were seeing. So when they started talking about what the tower controller should have, could have, and would have done, it makes it hard to to give them any, any any real credence at first. But after it gets repeated for a couple of weeks, the, the, the reality that the pilot in command is always a pilot in command sort of gotten lost in all the, all the chatter. Well, that's unfortunate. Uh, it's a sign of the times these days. No one uh, takes personal responsibility anymore. No one really pays attention to the fact that there is ultimately one guy, or in this case actually two guys, but one guy who has to make the decision, one guy who who is in control of the aircraft. Uh, and in this particular case, we had two guys, one who right. taxied the airplane to the runway mm-hmm. because he was the only one that had a tiller to steer it on the ground, and the other guy that uh, took over for the takeoff, and they both missed the DG headings, they both missed the compass rows, they both missed the backup indicator. Quite tragic, and, and it's something that has a lot of applicability to general aviation because who among us out there has never gotten confused on an airport field, particularly in the dark? Well, I think for those, especially in the general media perhaps, but those who might be just be starting out in their flying careers, this accident, and of course we have to ultimately wait for the NTSB to, to render a finding of, of probable cause, but this accident certainly appears to be the the aviation equivalent of of turning the wrong way down a one way street, it's That's unfortunate. That's as simple as it could be put. Yeah, uh, it's unfortunate. It's tragic. It's it's uh, a disaster of of some proportion, no question about it. And of course, at the end of the day, this accident, just like any other aviation accident, or major aviation accident, to be sure, is the the end of a long chain of seemingly insignificant mistakes. That's uh, certainly in, in, insignificant details, and uh, we could look at the runway construction at Lexington. Uh, we could look at the fact that uh, some of the lights there were inoperative. There were conflicting notams out. At least, uh, according to published reports, all of these factors 
enter into the, the final equation. The final equation is the aircraft apparently tried to take off on the wrong run runway. And the confusion, the areas of confusion on this seem to be so numerous. As you mentioned, the conflicting NOTAMs, the, the lighting situation, the runway 22's lights, that's the 7,000-foot main runway at Bluegrass Field, those lights were reportedly inoperative when that same crew and aircraft arrived the evening before. Then they come back the next morning, runway 22 lights are operating, runway 26 lights were in op and had been in op for a while. Really started things off down the wrong path, I think, just the change in runway lighting configuration. But this contention or this belief on some people's part that the second body in the tower, desirable though it is, required though it was, isn't an automatic guarantee that those guys up there would have caught it, not in the low no. visibility and haze of that morning. Absolutely not. And plus, it's it's not really their job. Their job, the job of the, the controllers in an air traffic control tower, is to separate aircraft on the runway. It is not... Uh, uh, to control traffic, as their their main job title implies, it's not to uh, serve as a backup or a uh, an additional check or Uncle Sam looking over somebody's shoulder. Their job is to separate traffic on the runway. And at six oh thirty or six oh five or whatever time it was on that that morning, I can bet you that there's uh, very very little traffic going into Lexington, Kentucky. The, the controller has other duties. He's got paperwork. He's got phone calls to answer from other FAA facilities. He's got uh, other things to do than, than stare out the window and, and monitor a uh, an airline, a scheduled airliner, and to make sure that the crew takes the right run runway. One well, final point: if, if the published reports I've seen are accurate, and I have to admit that I have not followed every every single uh, bit published on this accident. Uh, if they were accurate, though, there was a, a jump-seating captain, a flight crew member at least, uh, in the cockpit also. So there were three sets of eyes uh, in that cockpit. Not only was there uh, reportedly a third set of eyes, uh, uh, another flight crew member on the jump seat, but the visibility down in that part of the world that particular weekend wasn't all that great. Temperatures were high. Humidity was higher. Uh, it was awfully hazy there in the Ohio River Valley that weekend. Uh, sitting at a restaurant uh, across the river from Louisville, Kentucky, sitting on a riverbank looking a mile and a half away, there were times the evening uh, before the crash when you couldn't see some of the buildings a mile and a half away. So discerning that the airplane was turning on the wrong runway from on nearly a mile away in the tower wouldn't have been a slam dunk either. Yeah, there's frequently I, I encounter taxiways and even some runways that at, at night, and uh, especially in low visibility conditions, especially when uh, it's been raining and the pavement is wet, you can't find the taxiway center line, and you can't find other markings on the pavement simply because it's the, the glare from the, the taxi and runway lights on the airplane, the taxi and landing lights on the airplane or just, just generally poor visibility. And it's not at all surprising that this crew could not find the right run, runway mm -hmm. in those conditions. Yeah. What, what did surprise me, and continues to out of this, is the uh, reality that the FAA had been very actively in violation of its own staffing policy, not only at uh, 
not only at Bluegrass Airport in Lexington, but several other airports around the country where the uh, policy and the requirements are for two t t controllers in the tower during the night shift. And we're finding that uh, in several instances, uh, other than Bluegrass, they've been getting by with one for "quote unquote" efficiency reasons. Yeah, let's right. let's uh, talk about this. And and I I don't want to draw a direct connection between this next subject and the crash in Lexington. Um, as Jeb pointed out, the NTSB will tell us someday what they really think happened there. But it does it does make an interesting segue into the question that. Dave is kind of alluding to, and that is whether or not there are enough people staffing the air traffic control system. What do you think? I don't think, no. I, I don't think it's, it's a question at all. Uh, from everything so, yeah. that the FAA has said and the Controllers Union has said and the, the FAA has not denied, they're fairly well behind the curve in maintaining ATC staffing levels and getting farther behind uh, on training replacements for the retirement bubble that we're just about to enter. Everywhere I go these days, there's always uh, pick a flight of 500 nautical miles out of the Washington, D.C. area, and you go through two or three other tracons and, and spend a lot of time on center frequency, etc. There's always a sector or sectors that are down the tubes. You can't get a word in edgewise. The controller is, is clearly, I won't say over his head, he is clearly inundated, he is clearly busy, he, is, he clearly has his hands full. It's not a dangerous situation in the sense that airplanes are falling out of the sky. It is frustrating for everybody because we all know, everybody on the frequency, I should say, knows that if the airspace had been sectorized a little bit differently and, and more than one body was attached to, to controlling this traffic, the guy would not be nearly as busy. Well, what's the problem? Why doesn't FAA just hire more people? Because it costs money. That's right. They don't want to spend the money because they, uh, well, they don't want to spend money, period. They, they, uh, don't, they don't want to spend money on people. They're more than happy to spend money on hardware and, and throw dollars, uh, multi-billions of dollars at, uh, at contractors trying to come up with the latest and greatest uh, national airspace system plan and things like that. But they don't want to spend money on people. They don't want to spend money on the benefits it takes to hire and retain those people. And they most assuredly don't want to spend it on uh, um, controllers who are, quote-unquote, blue-collar workers in the eyes of the FAA, and uh, not management, not, uh, not the anointed uh, few, not that I have a strong opinion. Well, and let's take a look downstream, too, because, you know, one, the next item on, on Jack's list here is ADSB. And we've been hearing from different organizations, the FAA, AOPA, and others for years about what a godsend ADSB is going to be. But the fact of the matter is that we're still looking at a decade or better before it's at a level that it's going to be, that would make it effective as a national system. And several more years after that before there's enough equipment in the GA and commercial fleets to make it 100%. And the FAA doesn't really want to replace a lot of controllers now that they know in their heart of hearts that if they, we can just stall until we get ADSB, we won't need as many. Yeah, let's talk about right. this. But before we, um, can can one of you guys kind of give us a little description of what ADSB is supposed to be and what it is, if there's a difference? Dave, I'll let you tackle that one. Okay. I, I'm, I think you're more familiar with ADSB than I am. ADSB stands for Automated Dependent Survey Broadcast. 
and essentially it's a transmitter and repeater on an aircraft that communicates with air traffic control screens through a satellite. It takes GPS position from your navigator or from a standalone box that's part of the ADSB unit, broadcasts your position, altitude, airspeed, and direction of flight to the satellite. Then that is rebroadcast to a system through a system that's open to every ADSB receiver in range. So the air traffic controller can see your aircraft in an environment where there's not radar for 500 miles. And every other ADSB-equipped aircraft within range can also see where you are on their multifunction display. It is admittedly a great advance. It's the next generation in air traffic control technology. It's been in use in the Ohio River Valley. Uh, UPS has been using it for, gee, now on a decade now. They've been using it in Alaska under the Capstone Project. Uh, it's done wonders in Alaska and in the Ohio River Valley to improve traffic flow because it's not radar dependent. It's faster. It doesn't wait on the screen uh, sweep. And everybody can see everybody else. Well, the move now is to make ADSB nationwide. It kind of follows on with the wide area augmentation system that we have for GPS. We've gotten uh, equipment now accurate enough to report aircraft positions within 60 feet through ADSB lengths. They'd be able to do away with all the ground radar stations. Uh, you'd be able to do away with all the radar maintenance. It would provide coverage in parts of the world where they've never had coverage, such as in mountains down in valleys, as the experience in Alaska has shown. Well, it sounds but great. What's the problem? Money. Time. Well, there's, there's two or three problems, uh, if I may. Uh, sure. One. Uh, is, is the money it would take uh, to equip the average general aviation aircraft with a full-blown ADSB suite. Basically, you're, you're yanking out all the navigation equipment, all the transponder equipment, and replacing it with this, this newer equipment. Part of the problem with that is there's until the full ADSB ground support system is in place and until the rest of the fleet anties up and installs ADSB. there's no real benefit to being an early adopter of the technology. Right, you Second have to problem, actually maintain two systems until it's right. right. Second issue, to me anyway, is that ADSB first of all, requires Mode S, and the Mode S transponder is a much higher data stream, for example, and there are certain built-in data blocks in an ADSB, in a mode, mode S transponder that uh, has, the, uh, has a number of benefits, but uh, also has the uh, ability or the, uh, perhaps the necessity, if you will, of uh, tracking the aircraft everywhere it goes. Not that that's a bad thing, but it certainly would facilitate uh, levying of user fees on a, on a per mile or per use basis, which I think is one of the uh, the driving factors at the FAA behind ADSB generally. I think thirdly is the the issue of uh, self separation and self sequencing. Uh, Aviation Safety Magazine a few months back ran a, a uh, feature story on what we called uh, self sequencing approaches, and essentially this involved an ADSB technology that an airspace area is designated for a terminal area that's, um, uh, let's say it's a uh, non-controlled airport. It's one that doesn't have radar, as an example. 
and uh, doesn't have good radar coverage, I should say. And all of the aircraft trying to uh, make an instrument approach into that facility are ADSB equipped. The, uh, so, so the technology goes, the, uh, the various flights trying to access that airport would self-sequence themselves, kind of like uh, a group of vehicles, cars, pulling up at a four-way stop sign, if you will. And the individual drivers using the right-of-way and the other rules of the road choose on their own who goes next, who goes second, who goes third. That's all well and good at a four-way stop sign in, in, uh, out in Podunk, but it's not so good uh, when there's a mix of different aircraft, uh, different skill levels, uh, different performance levels trying to uh, uh, get into that airport. Some of them may or may not have ample fuel to hold and mill around. Some of them may not. And a, and a, a final uh, little issue with this self-sequencing thing is not all aircraft are going to be participating. There's numerous scenarios where, let's say, a 1,500-foot overcast exists at that airport, making it essentially an IFR airport for in-route traffic, necessitating an approach. But it's VFR underneath that overcast, and there's uh, non-participating VFR aircraft milling around. I don't know what the solution is. I don't know what uh, how, you, uh, how you do all of that with the self-sequencing uh, concept leave it to, to other minds smarter than mine to, to try to figure all of that out. Well, we've got the solution in hand right now. Yeah. The, well, we do. I mean, it's called uh, uh, ground-based radar. Well, I was just going to say it's called the air traffic controller. If, it, exactly. if they stop trying to make ADSB solve problems that it wasn't designed to solve and look at it for what it is, it's a tool for providing accurate position data that you can't get at near this level now with radar, and you can't get it all in some parts of the country because there's no radar. But you still have to have the human interface there, and you still have to have a little human judgment. That's why we wound up with controllers to begin with. All the airlines had their own air traffic control systems, and they were supposed to be taking turns. And, well, you know, schedules and competition being what it is, somebody ran into somebody else, and... Uh, there wasn't a very happy thing for the commercial business, so we invent an ATC system. Mm-hmm. If ATC is allowed to adapt to the technology and the technology be used as it should be as the tool for the controllers, then I think it has great potential, certainly great safety and traffic flow potential. But those things are all years away, and we've got a system that's growing by about 7% a year by all accounts, and controller staffing that's already behind the curve. We can't be waiting for the human element to adapt to something that's not going to be usable by the general aviation and airline pilot for another 10 to 15 years. That's right. Yeah. Well, I know this is going to be a subject that people are going to be talking about for some time to come, so we'll probably come back to it again in the future. Unless... I have no doubt. Unless there's anything else you want to add to that, uh, uh, let's move on here. Um, Not that we feel strongly about it or anything. <laughs> I, you know, I, I, that's you know, I I confess that I wasn't really at all up to speed on this subject, and it was that last evening that we were all together in Oshkosh when we were having dinner right. with a uh, and I don't want to name names here because it was kind of a private conversation, but with a, a Lockheed employee who uh, who was presenting the positive view of this stuff. And it was very interesting to listen to uh, to the the three of you go back and forth discussing this. Um, you know, it definitely has its pros and cons. It seems to me, and uh, uh, absolutely, tools are tools. 
takes humans to make the tools work. It'll be interesting to see where exactly it goes. Right. You know, another uh, another one of the exciting things that came out of AirVenture Oshkosh this year was the whole subject of uh, the the so-called VLJs, the very light jets. And and Dave will give us his acronym, which we'll come back to in a second. But that was a that was a pretty exciting. Uh, uh, it's a pretty exciting new category. Uh, and uh, you know, with the uh, the Eclipse Jet getting its sort of certification, and uh, the V Jet getting shown off, and the Honda Jet getting shown off and others hinted at and what what do you guys think about this is this the way of the future well it could well be time will tell unfortunately we really only have one aircraft that, that meets the definition of a vlj that's uh, as you correctly know sort of certified that's the uh, eclipse 500 received its provisional certification at uh, at oshkosh this year the provisional certification differs from full certification in this instance to the lack of various hardware and software certifications of the avionics, for example, and uh, various operations. The uh, known icing uh, uh, certification comes to mind as one of them. But it, it allowed Eclipse to go ahead and, and start selling and delivering airplanes, and that's that's a great thing. In the coming months, and go ahead, Dave. I'm just going to say, to put this whole thing in, in, in a quick perspective, what we're seeing happen right now is the competitors are finally getting into the starting gate. They've been in development. This has been a long process of promises and dates and development time. But until these things are actually shippable and usable 100%, we don't have a race yet. But we're getting at that point right now, and by the end of the year, we could have three of these out of the starting gate and actually in the race. Cessna's uh, Citation Mustang, the Eclipse, and the Adam A seven hundred if they if they get on the ball. I think Adam's gonna be a few months late, but uh I think actually gonna move that we can move that calendar up a little bit and uh, we can aim towards the NBAA convention in mid October. Oh, absolutely. Now Dave, Middle you were telling us you were you were saying earlier today when we were chatting that uh, that you actually think there's a category within a category here or or there there's sort of uh-huh. two ways to look at this. Well, there's there's something new happening on the horizon before the VLJ has even had a chance to prove its metal. And a few of us have started to call it the PJ, and that's not that footed sleepwear that you wore as a kid. It's uh, a term Alan Klapmeyer at, Set- at Cirrus actually coined last year for the personal jet. Uh, Alan was asked in a, uh, in a press conference to uh, confirm rumors, very strong rumors, that Cirrus was developing a very light jet. Alan looked square at the crowd smiled and said, I can tell you absolutely we are not developing a very light jet at Cirrus. Now, ask me about the personal jet. Right. And, and what's the we distinction? Saw, we saw, I'm coming to that, okay. the, the, the first of the new generation of personal jets at Oshkosh this year in the Diamond D jet. That's D as in Delta jet. Five seats, single engine, single pilot, no high altitude training required, no RVSM, that's uh, reduce, reduce vertical separation minimum equipment required because it'll have a service ceiling of 25,000 feet. That's flight level 250, kiddies, and that's the point above which high altitude training becomes mandatory for aircraft operators. So now you've got an aircraft, single pilot, single engine, so there's no multi-engine requirements to get into this 
It's going to require a high-performance sign-off and whatever extra stuff your insurance company kicks in. For just barely over a million, you can go 315 knots faster than any single-engine turboprop for about 1,200 miles, burn a lot less fuel than any single-engine turboprop going that fast, and carry three to five people in luggage. That's the next wave. Cirrus is working on one. Clapmeyer acknowledged that that day. And the uh, rumors coming out of a couple of other airplane companies are that they're looking at a below-the-VLJ threshold uh, light jet, a uh, very light jet. No, a personal jet. What makes it personal? Single engine, four to five seats, and about a 6,000-pound gross weight. Sounds cool. Now, these aren't going to be... These aren't going to be Learjet competitors. They're not going to be doing Mach 0.80. God knows that 25,000 feet or so, that'd be faster than anybody else up there. But uh, they will be jets. They will give you that aura of flying a jet, one little lever to control the engine, and the comfort and pressurization that you'd expect in a jet without all the complications of multi-engine time, turbine time, high-altitude sign-off, I think that as engines continue to devolve into ever smaller thrust ranges, that we're going to see another wave of this over the next five years or so. Yeah, I think you will. Uh, you know, PJ has a, a lot of interesting uh, capabilities and, and uh, possibilities, if you will. Two thoughts. One, it's it's interesting... Personal jet, the, the, the single-engine jet in and of itself is not a new concept. There was a uh, a uh, concept jet uh, put together, I believe, by Gulfstream back in the mid-'80s called the Peregrine. Peregrine was, uh, was one. The Vision Air Vantage was another. Uh -huh. the, uh, the Peregrine didn't get off the ground for, uh, I think, some financial reasons and uh, perception reasons, perhaps. Other examples have, haven't gotten off the ground for one reason or another. One of them happened to be that, uh, as far back as I can remember, Williams uh, International, the, the manufacturer of uh, all of the very popular smaller jet engines at that time, refused to sell new engines to manufacturers if they weren't going into a twin-engine jet. Apparently, they've changed their policy on that. And, uh, according to the logo on the Diamond D-Jet, uh, According to the logo on the Diamond. Yeah. Exactly right. Uh, so that's that's an interesting development. I, I uh, would love to, to peel that onion a little bit more and find out what made Williams uh, corporate change their mind. Uh, I think the second thing, though, You, you don't think that, it was uh, money? Say again? I think they're selling enough engines as it is. Uh, I... I could I'll certainly could be money. Could could be uh, just uh, the perfection of the software and and uh, uh, perfection of the product, at least in their mind. I don't know. But well, there's, there's 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 something that's changed on that landscape uh, that uh, bears mentioning here, and that's called the Pratt and Whitney 600 series. Mm -hmm. Until the Pratt and Whitney 600 series came out, uh, Williams had virtually no competition in that 2,000 pound yeah. thrust range and down. Now there's a new gunslinger in town, and if you look around, that 600 series has done pretty well in the market lately. So opening up to single engine is a good way to re-expand your market share. 
Yeah, good point. It's pretty exciting. I think it's going to be it's going to be fun to watch that whole that whole category develop over the next you know years. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean eventually they may actually get jets down to a price range that a Bonanza pilot can afford. Yeah, or Bonanza well, you never get up to where you could buy a jet instead. One of the two. Or you you may just find uh, uh, reunioning programs for Bonanzas where you you drop a, a jet into it and don't look back. Yeah, there you go. Well, once again, we've burned through our allotted time here, and it occurs to me we might wrap this thing up by talking about things that are going to be happening in the next couple of weeks. Uh, anything come to mind? Dave, you said you were sort of collecting uh, information about aviation events. Is there anything coming up in the next couple of weeks or so that, that in the top of your head? Well, actually, right now my eyes are kind of on the next two big industry events, uh, NBAA convention in, uh, in Florida in about five weeks. And then about a month after that, the uh, AOPA convention. And for anybody that picks this up in time, uh, this coming weekend, which would be the weekend of the 9th and 10th, is the McConnell Air Force Base open house here in Wichita. Mm -hmm. The headlining act this year is the Air Force Thunderbirds. It's always a, a fun event. The commemorative Air Force guys will be there. They'll probably have some representation from the Torah squadron doing their uh, their uh, Pearl Harbor reenactment that's always good for a little explosive entertainment and the good news for anybody that's been to this event before and abandoned it because by the time the Thunderbirds flew you were looking into a setting sun they have moved the show side to the west side of McConnell Air Force Base over on the Boeing Wichita side so that when the real entertainment starts in the afternoon, it's just like Oshkosh. The sun's behind you, and you get a great view of the aircraft. That sounds like a fun What are the dates of that again? That's going to be September 9th and 10th at McConnell Air Force Base. So that's this weekend. This podcast will be put online around about uh, Wednesday night, Thursday, something like that. So that'll be, if you listen to this podcast right away, it'll be the, the upcoming weekend. On a much smaller scale, one event that I want to throw out a little bit, little plug to, um, and I've never had an opportunity to attend this, but I've always wanted to. Jeb, you may be familiar with the Virginia EAA mm -hmm. fly-in. Um, yes, that was what I was going to mention. Tell us about well, it. Well, I don't know. We might be talking about two different events, but go ahead. Well, the one that I'm thinking of is the uh, the so-called EAA regional fly-in um, that's on uh, starts on September 30th at, uh, I understand that it's at Dinwiddie County Airport? Yeah, we're talking about the same event, exactly. Have you attended? I have not attended. I uh, It's on my calendar. I would very much like to. I was not able, there was a similar event last year. I was not able to attend uh, at Petersburg, but uh, Virginia has a very active and very um, conscientious uh, aviation department throughout the state. They they do a lot in creating... One of the best in the country. In, in, yeah, one of the best in the country. They do a great uh, job in creating an excellent environment for general aviation in Virginia. And it's uh, it's very beneficial to the state, in my opinion. Uh, anybody within the range, literally, of the Dinwiddie County Airport should uh, indeed plan on coming down or coming out uh, on the 30th uh, should be a good time. Yeah. Uh, these people and know how to, how to run an event like this. Let me put in one little retroactive plug for something. I'd like to send some congratulations out to two of my good friends, Jim Davis and Ken Papard, who are based, uh, keep a 172 at Warrington Fauquier County Airport there south mm -hmm. of the Washington area in Virginia. This past Labor Day weekend, they had their 20th annual hangar fly-in and cookout. It's their personal party. It's always open to whoever drops in. They've been doing this 
like clockwork, rain or shine all these years just for the fun of seeing lots of old friends and meeting new ones. And I think that anybody that can keep something like that going with all the work that it entails for two decades out of their own pockets with their own efforts deserves a little attaboy. So congratulations, you know, Jim. And Jim and Ken are, are two of the real good people in aviation in northern Virginia, and my hat's off to them. I, uh, I can certainly see where... Having started that however many years ago, you might get to the point of saying, no, you know, screw it, I'm not going to do it this year, i got too much on my plate. But those two guys haven't, they won't, and uh, it's uh, it's really a feather in their cap to, to keep this thing going. Having attended it in the past, it is a great event, and uh, I was invited this year, but was simply unable to attend, and uh, it's my loss. I understand it was a little soggier than usual, but we had just as big a crack. <laughs> Yeah, that was unfortunately one reason I was not able to attend. Uh, the weather around here has been pretty scudgy the last few days. Dave, I know that you've been putting together a special uh, uh, exhibit of uh, your aviation photography. Can you tell us about that real quickly? Oh, sure. You know, un- unknown to many, I have a secret life as a part owner of a uh, gallery for photographers here in Wichita, unoriginally called the Photographer's Gallery. And the last Friday of every month, we have a reception to unveil new exhibits by our exhibiting photographers. We've got seven different photographers with us right now. And Friday before last, the last Friday of August, I put up a new collection of 12 photographs that I call air show images from the front lines of flight. What they have in common is that they were all part of the action at an Oshkosh or a Sun and Fun or an EAA fly-in. They're diverse in the sense that some of it's military, some of it's air show performers, some of it's just things that you'd see around the field. I'd like to say that I have it up for the world to see on my website, but I'm still about a week away from getting caught up enough to do that. So, uh, so right I, now it's I'll just try a, to flog this again when uh, when it's up for good. That's okay. But right, so anybody who's in the Wichita area, though, they should swing on by. If anybody is in Wichita and would care to see some uh, outstanding photography uh, or aviation photography, drop by the Photographer's Gallery. We're at 1007 West Douglas in the Delano neighborhood. We love meeting other photographers. We love meeting other pilots. Great. And Jeb, what are you working on these days? What's going on? Uh, just trying to get my magazine done. Um, Your magazine being? Magazine being, Aviation Safety Magazine. Going to have a pretty good issue uh, this this month uh, for October, I should say, talking about black hole approaches, talking about oil analysis, talking about, in fact, we, a topic we touched on earlier this evening, VLJs and uh, private jets. Uh, can the typical uh, piston driver, in fact, handle uh, a VLJ? The answer is probably yes, but what are you going to take to become proficient in that kind of, a, of an aircraft? Another topic for uh, October's issue is uh, what we call airspace charting traps. Various charts put out by the federal government and, of course, by Jepson chart special use to airspace, for example, in different ways. Some interesting nuances involved in some of that. And we'll have a very lengthy article, uh, a very detailed article by Tom Turner, uh, who not coincidentally, uh, one, of, one of our longtime contributors, not coincidentally, just earned his uh, uh, Master CFI designation this week. Tom's contributed an article on commercial maneuvers, and the subtitle would be something along the lines of, what are they good for? 
what can we learn from them, by, especially by perfecting them. Uh, so it's going to be, turn out to be a really good issue. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to getting it locked down. So if people wanted to find out a little bit more about that, I believe it's aviationsafetymagazine.com, correct? All one word, yes. All, all yes one, well, one except straight. for the .com, but yeah, aviationsafetymagazine.com. And Dave, you're at davehigdon.com. That's correct. And before we blast out of here, we've got a new nominee to become Secretary of Transportation, yes, Mary Peters. She comes from the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Arizona Department of Transportation. And something we'll want to keep our eyes open and talk about next time is her past advocacy of toll roads for funding new construction. <laughs> Sounds like a user fee advocate to well. me, but time will tell. Well, then tune in again next time. We should be back. I think we'll probably be back again in about two weeks. Uh, The next uh, episode of uh, this uh, podcast uh, expected around September 20th, I believe that is. That's the plan. Sounds like a date. I'll bring the popcorn. Jeb Burnside, Aviation Safety Magazine, Dave Higdon, DaveHigdon.com. I'm Jack Hodgson. Thank you, everybody. Good night, Al. I fly above the trees, over the seas, in all degrees. You can email your suggestions and feedback about this podcast to podcast at aroundthefield.net.